0: Welcome to the Weathervane Podcast. I'm Brian McTeer from Weathervane Music, here again with a sweetheart for the ages, uh-huh. Mr. Peter English. Uh, Peter and I recorded these conversations way, way, way back uh, in early 2014, and we're sharing them now, partially in, in anticipation of Peter's next big thing, which is something he's going to tell us about right now.
1: That's right. I've been working on a podcast... It's a narrative journalism look at the music industry and it's called the Long Play. It's about making your passion into your career.
0: And this podcast, when are we going to hear it? Fall of 2015.
1: But what we're listening to now is actually the precursor to all of that. And uh, these are conversations that we recorded here in Philadelphia that talk with uh, amazing recording artists and engineers about how they improve and sustain their craft. And my conversation today is with Kristen Thompson. She's a founder of the Future of Music Coalition and a founding board member of Weatherby Music.
0: And for those of you who don't know, uh, Kristen is also a rock star. Uh, She played in the 90s band Tsunami with Jenny Toomey and the two also ran the DC label Simple Machines which released recordings by bands like Ida, Lungfish and Pocket Watch, Dave Grohl's band. Uh, Not to mention... Uh, they put out a DIY handbook for independent labels called The Mechanics Guide. And it was way, way, way ahead of its time. And I, and I know it, it helped many uh, indie label uh, get launched. It's a, it's a seminal thing that I'm
1: not sure, not, not enough people know about. Uh, and so this was a great conversation where we got to, to hear her perspective on all the stuff that she learned. And, and I started by asking her about her history. Yeah, that's great. Cool. So, so like I said, I have so much that I, I – because, you know, like – so you're on our board, and you've been invested in, and sort of engaged in our history for the last couple of years, and so that's more, mostly how, like, we interact. But there's all this other stuff that I don't feel like we've ever actually get to sit down and talk to. You. So in some ways, this is totally selfish on, on my part because there's so much knowledge that you have and so much experience that you have that i'm curious about that i want to know and so i'm assuming if i'm really curious about it that other people should be even if they don't know that they are they should be um so the main thing i sort of i want to i want to talk and i wrote down a bunch of questions i i want to talk about like i was saying the two phases or i guess and i would describe them and you can tell me whether that's how you look at it your own life, but I look at sort of like the, the, uh, the tsunami simple machines phase and then the FMC sort of phase Mm -hmm. is sort of like two eras. Yes. Um, and so I want to start back and we'll, we'll jump around a little bit, but I want to start back up at, at sort of at the top, I guess I sort of want to ask sort of like what, so what was going on in 1990 for you and sort of what, what led you to start not just a band, but a band and a label?
2: Um, uh, I was, I went to college in Colorado okay. and in 80, 1999, I moved to Washington DC mostly cause I was really curious about the city of DC and all the power and the dynamics and the, and the interesting things going on in Washington DC. Yeah. So I had an internship at the national organization for women, which was busy organizing a very big March. Right. um, but immediately, and I was already a music fan. I had worked at um, our college radio station. I had right. been the concert organizer at school. Yeah. Um,
1: Were you playing also? And I was in a yeah,
2: band right. in college, yeah, yeah, but yeah. you know, wasn't. I was mostly just a bit player. Right. But um, when I got to DC, um, within a couple of weeks, I had figured out started to go to punk rock shows, mm-hmm. um, mostly organized by this uh, youth activist group called Positive Force, mm-hmm. and um, I got instantly immersed in what Positive Force was doing. Um, They were tabling at events, but they would have meetings every other Saturday in Arlington, Virginia at a group house. And that's where I met Jenny Toomey. Um, And I saw her, in fact, she was doing an announcement on stage at a Jawbox Shutter to Think show. And I was like, wow, she seems amazing. And um, so I started to go to Positive Force uh, meetings and then pretty much... (laughs) <laughs> jumped in with both feet. And so I yeah. got involved with organizing shows with them, right. volunteer projects, protests, punk percussion protests. Punk and, percussion yes, protests. Yes, we would do a lot of those, taking p- pots and pans and cans and taking them to rallies or creating our own noise at various events. Um, so through Positive Force, yeah. um, I became good close friends with Jenny Toomey, and she was already in a, a few bands right. um, and had started to think about running a little label. Mm-hmm. And luckily, in Washington, D.C., we had an exemplar model in our neighborhood, which was Discord Records. Right, right. Discord is the label of Fugazi and many other bands.
1: It's Ian MacKay. And, and, right, yeah. and
2: Ian MacKay and Jeff Nelson, who were both in Minor Threat together. By this time, Fugazi was uh, just releasing 13 songs that, right. that, that September, which was, to me, one of the most important records of my life. Right. Um, and they were you know, really setting a wonderful example of how to run an ethical, fair, um, purposeful business, Mm. um, running, putting out records of Mm -hmm. mostly Washington, D.C.-based bands. And for Jenny, and eventually for me, um, we wanted to try and do it as well. So um, that's how... That was one of the um, main um, sort of impetuses for
1: Simple Machines. So why does why does Discord, why does, why do Ian e McKay, why does, why does, why does that resonate with you? Like what, that's not how everyone thinks about going about making music. You know, that, like, why is that?
2: I think that Discord, being in DC at the time, the um, meeting of the synthesis of ethics, purpose, message, mm. politics, business, self-sustaining things, community were all wrapped up together in both discord and the bands that were part of that community. I mean, there was so much going on, you know, bands playing benefit shows, um, participating in protests, whether as individuals or as a band, um, having, um, having things that they stuck, they stuck their guns to things like for, for example, Fugazi always playing $5 shows, so right. it was affordable, right. or all, having them all be all ages. And a lot of the other bands in the D.C. area either adopted those same kind of right. principles or had some other modified version of it. And I, for me, it made music be more, less um, sort of you know, businessy and more right. about what music really can do, which is empower people, serve as a rallying cry, right. and a community builder.
1: right. Yeah, I mean that. This sort of goes to what I we might be just going there right now. I'm wondering how you'd compare and contrast what's going on now because I don't think about those same things in the same. Or we're you know we are trying to think about things in in some ways in similar ways. Maybe without necessarily the punk aesthetic, but some of those ethics values are are important to us. But I don't look at that as the tenor of the music industry or even that many corners of the music industry right now. like So I'm just curious what it felt like. Oh, For then. me,
2: it felt so um, energetic and inspiring yeah. and empowering. And all those things. I mean, that's kind of the, <laughs> the thing that drove us with Simple Machines. We were like maniacs trying to um, take full advantage of what we could do right. at that age. Whether, whether right. it was both putting out records of... On the, for Simple Machines, we were working with bands that were not just from D.C., but bands that were sort of indie, pop, punk, and we had other labels that were like us, like Unrest, I mean, Unrest's label, Teen Beat, Mm -hmm. and then Slumberland Records, which was in Silver Spring. And so we would oftentimes organize events together. We would um, go on tour with bands that were similar to ours. Like, for example, Tsunami often went on tour with Versus from New York um, or with Velocity Girl. Yeah. And, um, so for us, it was, um, a way to, to make friends and actually support each other yeah. and, you know, find out about other scenes, you know, beyond right. what maximum, you could read in the maximum rock and roll scene reports, <laughs> yeah, um, because yeah. that was really, pretty really punk oriented. And I certainly am a fan of punk rock and right. <laughs> part, part, was part of that community, but we were doing a different kind of music that was right. sometimes not on their radars. Right. So, you know, for us, Simple Machines was a way to express those things, right. to, um, embrace those values, um, with a little bit of a, sort of a indie rock twist and, um, and hopefully help our friends with our musical friends. Right. Yeah. 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 And I do, I still do see that. Um, I admit that I'm a bit removed from the, the pockets of the music community where that, that those values are really held strongly. I do know they exist. Um, but I do agree that, there is a lot less of a distinction between what used to be like this unreal, unattainable part of the music industry. Like, oh, band signed to major labels and you too, and all those bands way up the top. Like, there's like a different <laughs> right. a- animal altogether. Right. And we it was so easy for us to just not even try try that.
1: Right. That wasn't part of your path, so why even aspire to that?
2: No, and we yeah. didn't aspire to it. And in fact, it was sometimes held up as a you know. Sort of unsavory part of the music industry. Right. Um,
1: it's very and, business oriented. Yeah, yeah, and
2: you know, pop stars and yeah, it was just for us didn't make sense. It wasn't part right. of our reality. Plus, with the independent music community, there was a lot of a lot of structures built in that were. Replicating what was what they were making things happen, like right. independent distributors, places to get seven inches made, cool printers, you could make your own t shirts. Like, we were making it happen, right? Without having to rely on these really mega structures,
1: right? There was an ecosystem that sort of you could, yeah. you could source what you needed from right. from your community, right? College yeah. radio, things right. like that.
2: But right. for but now, I see there's a lot more fluidity, and because right. there's bands that, um, Either they kind of come out of nowhere, like maybe they get popular on YouTube, or maybe they have a sync license deal where their music's heard on an an ad, and then they're like, who is that? And then they're suddenly launched into this stratosphere of the music world that was almost impossible to get to without major label support. So Macklemore, um, Feist, people that, um, you know, and what they're doing now varies, but, you know. The distinction is a lot less clear now.
1: It's less of a caste system. I think that, so. That sounds like harsh, but like yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: I mean, there's bands that are um, able to trans traverse back and forth mm. a bit because maybe they get a sync licensing deal that's really awesome and that's something of value to them because they can make some money and maybe that right. funds the tour to Australia or right. whatever. Right. And they may not have to get in the major label world to do that, but that is different than it used right, to be. Right, that's
1: attainable. Yeah. Where it wasn't before.
2: Yeah.
1: Right. But I, I mean, I guess I, I asked this to a lot of people, like, the dream seems to be like, make a song, make it so good, just put it out there. It'll work for you. Like, do you buy that? Is that, is that a model for you? Or, or is that, like, how much does that? If you were talking to a, a young band right now, who was mm-hmm. like, we're going to do it. Kristen, mm-hmm. we're going to do it. Like, what, what do we do? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what do you, what do you tell them?
2: Uh... No, I mean, go to your original thought about like, <clears throat> hey, we're going to put out a great record, and um, you know, the whole world will open up um, at our feet, which is maybe impractical. But if say you do put out a really, really good record, and um, it, that kind of stuff is actually hard to just remain undiscovered now, right. you know, because it's not just somebody flipping past it in the record bin. I mean, it's pretty if you make it accessible, SoundCloud, Bandcamp. CD Baby, TuneCore, whatever, Spotify, Spotify, whatever it is, if it's accessible and some people start to hear it and gain traction, and if it's really super awesome, people will hear it. (laughs) Right. It's not just going to fall into the dustbins of history. Um, But that doesn't mean that there's a zillion other things people aren't listening to. So, you know, and stuff that's heavily promoted by labels or getting commercial airplay, whatever it is. like. Um, that the mechanisms that make things popular are still very, very useful <laughs> and very, very good at what they do. Right. Um, right. There's an interesting book, actually, that just came out about three months ago about blockbusters and how...
1: Oh, did you read
2: that? I haven't read it yet. Okay. I understand the premise, though, enough to right. just mention that... Yeah. So what's the name of it? Blockbusters. And yeah. it's Anita Anita Ebersole that's a, a mm-hmm. biz, uh, at the Harvard Business School. Yeah. And... Um, uh, you know the premise or the sort of hypothesis that the internet will level the playing field and will will have like this sort of collapse of this giant pyramid of success the the long
1: Chris Anderson's the long tail as the model is maybe not
2: right and then you know she was kind of testing to see whether that was true and that there is still quite a significant blockbuster effect that there are superstars, and they take up most of the oxygen in the music industry. Right. And there's this whole rule about 80% of sales is 20% of the, con- you know, whatever, in 80-20 rule. And I think she found it was even more drastic, like 10% of the artists sell 90% of the music. And I folks should go to the book to get the actual statistics. But um, <laughs> she, she did note that the... Um, you know, the internet has not destroyed
1: this whole blockbuster and sort of um, superstar. Which was the dream of it. I feel like that was like the narrative that has been crafted even up until the last couple of years ago, mm-hmm. which is like, it's going to change everything. And mm-hmm. I guess, I you know. It, it has
2: it's certainly changed things. It has I mean, changed some things. We've certainly, we've, we've mentioned that, you know, access to the marketplace right. has, com- is so easy now. It's
1: revolutionized. Totally.
2: Yeah. I mean. I'll just, for folks who have never experienced trying to sell records to a distributor yeah, um, and that. to get paid for that, <laughs> right. which was Simple Machines put out about 70 records, yeah. 75, in an eight year span. Most of them were seven inches, some of them were CDs, some were vinyl. Mm-hmm. And um, we would sell to distributors, which would buy, you know, I don't know, 100 copies or 400 copies of something, and then they would sell them to retailers, and then they would send us a check eventually. <laughs> um, but I've, I've glossed over a couple of things, which is you have to convince the distributors to that your record is worth them taking a risk on. Mm. And you had to kind of hassle them to get paid, usually. Some mm. distributors were better than others, mm. but um, you always had to do follow-up calls, and you had to tell them about your next release and get them excited so they would buy those things. And um, Luckily, we had some fantastic distributors, but there's this entire part of the workflow – that is now, unless you're doing retail sales, it's totally irrelevant. Yeah, it's frictionless, yeah, yeah. So now, if I was in the same um, position that Simple Machines was in, and say, say we do a limited number of seven inches just to sell it, re- store, I yeah. mean, um, shops or yeah. at merch tables, but then the rest of it is like hmm, I go to a website and I fill in the metadata and I hit submit and it gets sent to all the digital stores. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
2: And then once a month, you get a statement and a digital payment into your um, right. your bank account based on the sales or the streams. There, there's no communication, no talking, no hassling, no, no threats. <laughs> right, no threats.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah.
2: so no missed phone calls. Um, yeah. All those things have totally disappeared. Now, Mm. so we've talked about the access to the marketplace is drastically changed. Um, But um, that doesn't make it any easier to be compensated for your work or to build a fan base. All those are new challenges or slightly different challenges.
1: Right. It it was hard then for certain reasons. It's hard now for certain reasons. Like, when is it not going to be hard to to do this kind of thing? Yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> right. There's your answer. Yeah.
2: yeah, right. It's uh, you know, it's just different challenges. It's right. um, and, and I, you know, people, bands, and artists always have different motivations. Sometimes they're like, I'm you know, I am compelled to write these songs. It's the way I am. I want to. Some bands are like, this is just fun. Let's do it for a while. You know, other people have right. much diff- different ambitions. Like, we want to get signed. We want to get radio play.
1: Right. Um. So that kind of brings us. You know, so, so in 1998, you decided to sort of mm-hmm. to fold up shop. Um, and then what is it, two years later, you, you started FMC with some other people? Um,
2: yeah, it was pretty much two years. There was this yeah. um, time in 98, 99 where Jenny and I, Jenny Toomey was still in D.C. and she went to work for the Washington Post. Yeah. Um, and I went to grad school. But we were both really curious about what was going on with the internet and how it was affecting indie labels. So we started to do this interview um, series um, yeah. that was published through um, uh, Epitonic's website at the time, um, and uh, it was called the Machine. And um, yeah, we just adopted our own type yeah. of name. <laughs> but um, so we would talk to Slim at Kill Rock Stars mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, other people, and we figured out we were so it was so fascinating to hear how people were dealing with things and whether they were actually licensing their catalog on what were they up to. And we also stumbled into this other entire world of emerging tech people, people who were trying webcasting, um, uh, music attorneys, um, and then lawyers and policymakers. And in about 99, 2000, we realized, especially Jenny realized, that there was this other world of policy, um, federal policy, copyright policy, um, that was uh, really important for musicians to pay attention to and right. participate in in order to make sure they were not um, exploited in the future you know it was a, an opportunity to make sure musicians were going to be fairly compensated right
1: and represented in the democracy like yeah. you, you don't you don't get a voice unless you make your voice heard
2: yeah there's let me give you an example yeah. that, that of where policy changed because of activism and um, we're very probably most listeners are aware of Pandora yeah. and Sirius XM, mm-hmm. and there's they, they, they exist in this class of uh, licensing called non interactive webcasters or digital broadcasters. So Pandora, Sirius XM, and any um, terrestrial web uh, sorry terrestrial radio station that's webcasting, including all the NPR stations, right. and college radio, and those channels on the cable, on your cable station, like channel 300 that's playing hip hop or whatever. Right.
1: Uh, right. Yeah. Music the, choice and all that. kind Yeah. Of stuff. yeah music yeah. choice.
2: Those are all called non-interactive uh, digital broadcasters. And um, they operate under a blanket license, a statutory license. Hmm. So that means that they just basically have to file a few sheets of paper uh, with a few agencies um, to have the right to play whatever they want.
1: It's like the same, almost the same as radio, but it's not under radio, right? That's the difference. It's
2: very similar to commercial terrestrial radio, but there's a slight change, and here's where policy and activism are magical. Um, In 1995, um, there was the passage of the Digital Sound Recording Performing uh, DSPRA Digital Sound Recording Performing Act, Performing Rights Act, Um, and um, this um, set up the rules about webcasting. And mm-hmm. so what they said was that there would be a new right associated with webcasts. So in, when you hear stuff on commercial radio, only the songwriter is paid. The songwriter and the publisher get the royalties from, from commercial radio and mm-hmm. terrestrial radio airplay. The, pu- the performer doesn't get anything. Huh? Nothing. Neither does the sound recording copyright owner, which is usually the record label. They get no royalties. They get nothing. Nope. And that's an old anomaly, an old (laughs) waiver, whatever you want to call it, an exemption that the terrestrial broadcasters have had for about 60 years. And in the mid-90s, when webcasting became sort of more than just a crazy idea that it was actually going to happen, then they set up this new... There was this opportunity to fix that. And um, so... A bunch of different organizations, especially the unions, AFM and AFTRA, yep. um, were very active in ensuring that perf- not only are songwriters and publishers compensated, right. but also performers and record labels. Right. So there are four entities that are paid when... St- oh, and fifth, background singers and, and session players. Oh. So they, when stuff is webcast on Pandora or played on Sirius XM, there are five different entities that get royalties. Right. And this, and even better, um, everybody's paid directly and simultaneously. So, if, um, so when Pandora plays stuff, yeah. um, they send a big chunk of money every month to Sound Exchange, right. which is this independent agency that um, manages digital performance royalties. And then they also send playlist stuff. So, Pandora sends data and money to Sound Exchange, and then Sound Exchange pays. The featured performer, 45%, the, sound, the record label, 50%, and the background singers and session players get 5%. Mm-hmm. And they get paid directly. So you're like, why am I even telling you this? Well, here's, <laughs> here's the benefit, which is, first of all, it's a new and right. And so pr- prior to that, performers and record labels weren't getting anything. Right. And over the past 10 years, SoundExchange has, has distributed $1.5 billion dollars mm. To performers and record labels. That's new money.
1: Right.
2: And then they also paid directly and simultaneously means that performers aren't having their royalties diverted through murky channels of record label accounting where things are uh, paid against other debts.
1: Right, other recoupes, Or they just yeah.
2: disappear. Right. And then the fact that background singers and session players get anything is awesome because they... Um, are Oftentimes overlooked in this stuff, so this was a moment in time where <clears throat> policy and activism, especially the unions, made it make gay, it created a new revenue stream
1: right, and so that the that wouldn't have happened, you don't think if if, if they
2: hadn't if, been if they hadn't part of the up. conversation, no right. it wouldn't it would have been very different. It probably would have just uh, probably the the right would have existed, but it probably would have filtered through the record labels right
1: right and so In some ways, so is FMC directly tied to that type of thing, which is saying like, we want to be a voice of those types of issues Mm -hmm. in the future?
2: Yeah, Future Music Coalition has, I mean, we we weren't an entity at that point, but we have always supported things like that, especially there's this sort of basic premise that musicians should be considered stakeholders, not just... um, uh, they they shouldn't be represented by others. So
1: right, you're not just a beneficiary; you're a stakeholder. Yeah, right? exactly.
2: And that musicians um should be as as much as possible. There should be transparency and um and direct payments as much as possible to artists. You know, meaning like try and reduce the number of conduits and places where things can get you know, disappeared. Right. right, right. <laughs> um, transparency. So yeah. transparency and right. also just basic access. Um, you know, in, in addition to what I just mentioned about performance royalties, we've spent a lot of time working on access to commercial radio and to try and reduce the impact of payola. Yeah. Um, right. Been strong supporters of net neutrality, which seems like sort of a very broad issue, but net neutrality means that the internet isn't subject to the sort of payola mechanisms, if you will, you know, that it makes it possible for emerging businesses to happen and for artists to be considered for the traffic that, um, musicians and bands websites generate is considered the same as everybody else's traffic right. and they aren't charged more for preferential access right. to audi- right. audiences so there's that and then we you know we've done a lot of work especially recently on musicians revenue streams so right. we could talk about that separately which is trying to document how things have changed over time
1: absolutely i mean i definitely want to so so that brings up like a couple i guess sort of like maybe this is the maybe you're going to get the same answer to like us talking about the revenue stream mm-hmm. things but i i like the question that i want to really i'm curious to know is what are the things what is what are the what are the new things like that act you were just talking about what are the things that musicians need to know about that maybe maybe they don't know about yet or you know haven't fully committed to like what are the things you feel like you you want to guide us to think more about? There are
2: a few policy things, but there's some things that are sort of ancillary to policy. So one policy thing is um, Future Music Coalition and many other organizations have been trying to um, get that exemption I mentioned about radio to go away. And so there's this... Long-standing, I mean, back to like Frank Sinatra uh, being an advocate for this uh, to pass a performance royalty for sound recordings for terrestrial radio, right. and this would ensure that um, that performers and sound and uh, labels would get royalties as well. Right. I mean, America, the states, is like one of the handful of countries in the world that doesn't have this right, and so there's um, <laughs> what it creates is not only the fact that. Performers and record labels just don't get this money at this point, but it also means that all the money that's being generated when mu- when music is played in other countries has no way to come to the United States because there's no reciprocal right.
1: And considering that music, like you were saying earlier, is a yeah. global, yeah, is very much a global marketplace now. Yep. God, how much is left on the table? From oh, that? so
2: much. And every country um, oh, deals with it separately. Some of right. them, some countries. Um, put it in a black box. Others spend it on their own cultural, <laughs> cultural it's work. not going to end up yeah. here. Do
1: what you want with it. Right. So,
2: so there's this, I mean, it, there's big problems and there's, right. um, and I just wish it would get passed because it's, I don't think it's an exemption. That's fair.
1: What's blocking it. Um, the, the radio, broadcasters
2: yeah. would rather, would, would like not to like pay to pay that. And, um, yeah, mostly it's the broadcasters. Right. Well, yeah. I mean,
1: that's lost money for them. So, yeah.
2: right. um, there are other things so that are somewhat um, beyond the scope of policy. Um, for example, the, anything about how much musicians are paid for on-demand streaming, like Spotify, Rhapsody, RDO, right. um Beats... Um, that stuff is all private negotiations between big rights holders like record labels and the services themselves. It doesn't really have any, there's not, no real oversight over those mm. negotiations. So that one's a bit harder. We often, we would write about it sometimes and we certainly follow the issues. Right. But, um, and, and the best that Future Music Coalition can do is to encourage, and, and artists can do this too. Encourage the services to try and be the best um, resource for both fans, music fans listening, and for the musicians that power their websites and power their services. So, what are the what are the things they could do better? And we've written about this a bit. And I'm always happy to see services um, experimenting with right. new new um, features. For example, yeah, you'll you'll know this because you've run a studio, which is yeah. um, oftentimes the on-demand services will display, you know, artist, album title, song. But they're missing some metadata that might be really important for either discovery or for compensation. Like, who recorded it? Right. Where? What year? Yeah. Who wrote the songs? Um, if it's an orchestra, who's the conductor? Who's the soloist? All these things right. that are maybe in their database, you know, that they've, of the data that was delivered to them, maybe. Right. Um, But they're just not being displayed on the services because there's limited space on an iPhone tablet or iPhone screen. But um, there are some services that are are experimenting with um, sort of exposing more data. Right. Um, So there's one. But the other ones, um, it's neat to see things like Spotify and I think Beats. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to, um, with say so you get super excited about an artist, they are trying to make sure you under, know when the artist might be touring in your area because they right. will merge in bands in town or song kick. or Songkick into yep. their display. Or they'll give musicians a chance to sort of manage their dashboard and be able to sell merchandise or other right. things off of their actual Spotify profile. Right. So I like those things yeah. so that they're creating more connections between... The band and, and they also are bringing sort of more higher value. like And I don't mean value as the sort of the value of the music. I mean like um, things that could cost more than the right. fa- fraction of a penny that the stream itself is worth.
1: So. Right. Well, so, okay. So, you know, a couple things off of that. I mean, yeah, one, it seems like a big issue is that as with a tech company, they're very consumer focused. Sure. And, the, and the musician is not actually the consumer in this right. situation. Uh, and that's, that's sort of a big problem. And so it's nice to see them say, okay, we actually have an obligation or a duty to that. What, how do you apply pressure to them? Like, what's the mechanism with which you actually say or actually have any, any impact on able to, uh, being able to change their, their there, minds?
2: There's an ongoing dialogue, so yeah. public conversation. We've done some writing about it on right. our blog and other people's blogs. Right. But Future Music Coalition also hosts an annual policy summit um, in Washington, D.C., usually in October that um, where we or- organize panels and right. discussions and oftentimes we will get to the specifics about these types of things um, and we make sure that when we have panels and discussions that we try and bring together people who have very different opinions mm. and um, it's n- never really sort of like a one to one. Like, oh, they said this, so let's do this. Obviously, these right. are companies that have a lot of choices to make. Right. Um, but it's nice to see um, it's nice to see them experimenting with different features and tools because I imagine we're getting to a point where there's almost saturation in the on-demand streaming marketplace. There's, I think, eight companies right now that are vying for a big. Then need, someone needs to like
1: to go yeah to go to back go for to, it yeah to go and, back to supply and demand we're,
2: yeah that's we, a problem too right there's eight companies operating in the United States that are trying to capture the on-demand streaming market so I think some of this experimentation has to do with what what's a feature that we might attract more ears to and and also Years? and also satisfy and also do you, satisfy I mean, them. Yeah, yeah sure like say you've say you're a really big music fan and you like to go to shows and maybe Spotify's tie in with with Bandcamp or Soundkick is like oh this is so much cooler than this you know like you know so than much than company C right. whatever so there's choices about that
1: and do you think there's also what do you, what do you think about the sort of bigger artists that are balking about Spotify and stuff like that? do you think that like do you think at a certain point if they're if everyone if there are all these different on-demand streaming companies and they need to have the biggest catalog with the best features for their users, do we as musicians have leverage right now in terms of being able to sort of like, do they need to compete for our catalogs or is that not even a... There's
2: just, oh gosh, there's just like a handful, maybe a dozen artists that have that much leverage. Right. And have the ability to either hold back their catalog or make specific deals. You right. know, Beyonce making a deal with iTunes for her recent record. Right. Um, Metallica holding back their catalog until I guess they were satisfied with whatever Spotify right. did. But you know, even, so that's just a
1: financial decision.
2: Even even the very top of the food chain of the music world, oftentimes artists, even if they're total superstars, may not have the right to control what happens with their catalog. Right. So, because they've signed deals where the sound, rec- the the record label has control over their sound recordings. Right. So, um, that so the leverage that bands have is uh, at the very top of the food chain. They might have more than <laughs> certainly more than the average band, but um, it varies. I think according to their contracts.
1: Right.
2: Oftentimes, which we just don't know. So.
1: Yeah, right. And, right it's true, like you said, it's backdoor. Yeah, it's, it's a backroom deal, right?
2: But you know, fruit. I mean. For bands signed to indie labels or unsigned labels, you know, or unsigned to any labels, you know, it's... um, We don't have an organization that represents us. Even, you know, the unions and Future Music Coalition Mm. and the Recording Academy, we all do, I think, do good work. And um, there are other trade groups like A2IM that represents independent labels. There's groups out there that are trying to represent a certain pool of of the music community, right. certain aspects of it, but it's hard to unite everybody to make progress on some of these yeah. issues because there's people have different opinions or different different accesses to levers of power.
1: Right. Right. So I have two, I guess I have one more question in this sort of area now, but I also really want to talk about the revenue streams. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, cause we're on this because I'm afraid that I'll forget it. If we go to the revenue streams, what do you recommend we as musicians do what are the you know if, if we if i'm listening to you and i'm saying like right ahead and thought about this stuff this is important gosh there may be money left on the table mm. for us as a community yeah what are, what am i supposed to do like what, what are my next steps
2: um if you're a band that's putting out records maybe on your own or on an indie label there are a few very basic things i think are important to do right. um first is um <laughs> And these sound so boring, but they're so important. Um, First of all, have an intra-band agreement, even if you write it up yourselves, so you understand the splits of any future revenue, uh, current or future revenue, because music exists forever on the internet. (laughs) Even if you break up as a band, if your stuff's up there,
1: checks checks will still be
2: coming in. (laughs) You have to know um, how things will be split in the future. Um The second thing is make sure if you write your own songs that you pick a performance rights organizations organization ascap b m i or if csac which is invite only um and register as a songwriter
1: do you recommend one over the other
2: nope i don't okay. and i i have i've seen both of them in action it i I can't qualify yeah. which one so but, but make ASCAP, sure, ASCAP,
1: BMI, SASC.
2: ASCAP or BMI or CSEC. Uh, make sure that you pick a PRO, understand what it's like to be a self-publisher or what it's like to have a relationship with a publisher, and um, make sure your repertoire, all your songs, are properly loaded into to their databases. Um, and then um, third, if you are a performer, make sure you're signed up for SoundExchange, which is free.
1: Yep.
2: Um, because that's the way digital performance royalties will come flow to you. Right. And, um, the, and then I would say, (laughs) you know, this sort of like business school things, which is, um, obviously, I mean, we started off this conversation talking about community and DIY and investment, which I still hold very true. And I think bands have to sort of make a, make decisions about how much they want to, um, get involved with certain, you know, marketing, promotion, all those things. But, um... I think the, the thing, the sort of advice I'd have was understand what your, where your audience might be and um, have your stuff there, you know? It's like right. um, make it easy for people to find, maybe if it's using Bandcamp as your sort of primary place, like, because right. I think Bandcamp's a really great tool. And if folks don't right. know, it's like a place where you can basically sell, have an online store. That you manage the cost, you manage the prices, and you can have variable pricing, which is awesome, and right. sell vinyls, like those, t-shirts, whatever like merch. It's yeah. Awesome, and um, make sure it's easy for bands to, or fans to find you, right? Um, and um, and <laughs> and make it. Um, yeah, like, it's, like, it's like what it's called. It's like segmenting your markets, which sounds so like marketing talk, <laughs> which is like just like sometimes having stuff on Rhapsody or Pandora or Spotify may not net you a ton of money, right. but it, if people don't hear your stuff, they'll move on to the next band, you know? Like, right,
1: we were talking about uh, supply and demand. Yeah. It's like if, if there are too many bands withholding mm-hmm. your music – does not earn you points the way it might have in the past uh, where there could be mystery around it. You know, that could be a thing you can't find. It's like, well, you know what? We demand that we can find it. And you know what? If I can't find you, Sorry, but there are other bands.
2: Right, I'll just move on to the next thing right. I want to listen to. Um, so, but I mean, there's there's probably value in those that thing called windowing, where you set you release it here and then six weeks later there. I don't know. There's been varying experiments. Right. I think bands up, up have to, to you, yeah. yeah have to figure it out. And probably if they're working with a label, figure that out. You know, all those things. But you know, there's still all this all this mystery and luck and hard work and timing and all these things that make bands popular or right. um, successful at what they do that are almost impossible to codify into sort of advice that works for everybody. Right. You know, that's, right. that's why I focused on the boring stuff. Like, make sure you know where you're, you know, your, all your stuff's logged in, that you no, have No, but metadata. that's real.
1: That's real because that's, there's money on the table. Like, like, sort of like the first rule would be don't leave money on the table. Yeah. Like, if you want to support yourself with this, you're going to have to do some foundational work. Yeah. And that's fine and that's it it may be boring but it's not it's no longer as challenging as you you know you explained that it was yeah 10 15 years ago it like it was a complete mystery in yeah. some ways to a lot of people and it is not now and so goddamn it do it you know like <laughs> yeah yeah um so the last thing that I want to talk about is this this artist revenue project so mm-hmm. tell me more about what you guys have been doing
2: um it's a research project of Future Music Coalition. And research is one of our, you know, programmatic areas we're um, always working on. So in about 2009, we were, it was just a funny little sidebar to some other conversation where we're like, let's try and list all the ways that you could make money from music. And we came up with 29 at the time and just had a blog post up. But then we some thought, of which
1: we've mentioned yeah, today. Yeah, some yep. we've
2: mentioned today. And, but then some people responded to the blog or had seen it and you know, pulled on our shirt sleeves and said, wait, don't, don't forget about this and that. So um, we expanded it to 42 revenue streams. Okay. And they are grouped into categories um, because uh, the contours of copyright law and business practice treat things differently. So we have one bucket of money you can make from being from compositions or from being a songwriter. That's the notes and the lyrics on the paper, right? And then there's another bucket of the sound recording, so the capture of the composition. There's a third one, performing, just going up on stage and getting paid some money from the door, whatever. There's other forms of performing. And then um, being a session player, being a hired gun, you know, whether it's in the studio or on tour. And then a bucket for branding, which is actually a really big bucket, because mm. it involves merchandise, um, licensing your persona. Um, right. uh, guest appearances, guest, experiential yeah, stuff. Yeah. All that stuff. And right. there's even there's so much more of that. And um, we even put the YouTube Partner Program in that bucket yeah, because it was sort of like it's doing a bunch of stuff at once and it was too weird to separate it. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. Things like that. And then we have a bucket for teaching knowledge of craft, like doing a master class right. or being a private instructor
1: right so this this sounds like an obvious question but i want i want to ask this one if i'm a musician mm-hmm. why should i read this
2: i think sometimes first of all i think that 42 revenue streams the mapping project that we did early on is actually one of the the best places to start because it um you might find yourself in this bucket like hey wait a minute i write songs wait i don't know anything about lyric websites, you know, it just, you might, um, find yourself thinking like, oh, well, I, maybe I should know more about that.
1: Oh, I've left money on the table. perhaps. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. So there's that I would, I would encourage people to start with that. And in fact, right. it is the most popular destination on the website right. at money.futuremusic.org. and the reports. Um, I think that the reports and the financial case studies, musicians might find themselves in there too. Like, oh, look, there's a chamber music group. Maybe if chamber music people might say, like, "How are we similar or different to this particular group there's that the but the reports themselves, I think the the benefit of having multiple versions of them or m- multiple looks looks at things um, m- means that you don't have to say so you don't care about jazz you know don't look at it, but maybe you care about whether radio airplay matters so right. um, i think I think and I actually just think they're interesting to read when when yeah. we write the reports, we try and combine. The data from all three different methods. Right. So it's not just survey data; it's also you know interviewees talking about it.
1: Right. And so it's really right. So there's anecdotal as well as data. Yeah. And then you guys always put together really well 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 done stuff.
2: (laughs) Thanks. And then one uh, another good starting point, another sort of easy one to start with is this uh, series we did a year ago called Myth Busting, which takes four of the things you often hear or read about on blog comments like. Oh, why should I care about that? Oh, musician! everyone knows musicians just make their money on and I'll fill in the blank. One blank is merchandise. Right. Or in the other blank is touring. touring. Yep. So we have a myth-busting section on both of those. Right. And then we have another one that's called, "Oh, all musicians are rich." <laughs> and then Oh boy. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Where to start with that one? Yeah.
2: <laughs> and um I can't remember the fourth one, but yeah. yeah so myth busting is a good sort of summary of things right. we commonly think about, and they're trying to dispel the myths around them.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's such an amazing um, public good. I mean, to go back to it like the ethic conversation. You know, it seems like there's this through line of like helping other people, making sure that um, and lifting up other people, making sure other people have access to information that runs through your career. Mm. That's, uh, it's, it's really admirable. Hmm, thanks. You know?
2: Thanks. It's, um, it's been super fun work. We're trying to get a second round of funding so we can, um, gather more data in the next, say 18 months. Do another survey. Yeah, we'd like to, um, because that would be the best way to measure change.
1: Absolutely. And also like having taken the survey, I highly recommend it because it's a real way to examine your own career. Mm-hmm. It's like, and it's like, you get a question asked, you go, "I hadn't thought of that." <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, it's implied in this question that maybe I should have. I'm gonna write that down, yeah, you know. Yeah. So it's it's like I, I would highly recommend it um, to you know stay on FMC's radar when if the, if you guys do this again to take this survey, mm-hmm. it's it is worth your time. It will teach you a lot mm-hmm. about your career and where it's going and where you want it to go, yeah. you know. And and it'll help them immensely to show where we're at as a you know as a community at large or as an industry
2: yeah i mean there has been so much change um in the past 12 15 years on the landscape um and there's assumptions made about how they're impacting musicians and until we actually do these types of measurements um we don't really know so we don't want know what ends up in musicians pockets until we ask them so
1: yeah i think it's really valuable cool well that's what i've got thank you so much for talking with me. thank you peter
0: Well, that was awesome. You can see now why uh, Kristen was the very first person I spoke to when I decided to start Weathervane in 2009. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, The Weathervane podcast is a production of Weathervane music and was edited by Matthew R. Poirier. Today's theme music comes from the remix by Manu K of the song Not For Nothing, recorded for the Mutual Benefit episode of Shaking Through. You can check out the episode along with countless other remixes. At weathervaymusic.org slash shaking through slash mutual benefit. Your hosts are me, Brian McTeer, and Peter English, who was once loyal to us, but now only cares about his new podcast, <laughs> The Long Play. And you can find out more at thelongplaypodcast.org. Whatever, Peter. Whatever, Brian. <laughs>